If you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 16. You'll find it also printed in your worship guide on page 9. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word to us today. We pray that we would hear your voice speaking through it by your spirit and that you would implant it into our hearts, that we would respond obediently, that we would be encouraged even through this passage. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we've made our way through the book of 2 Corinthians over the past many weeks, we've explored application to our lives today and the things that we're facing. And one cannot help but think of the things going on in the world today and how the scriptures apply. All the virus news and all the fallout from that, the trickle-down effect, and how it's impacted our lives, the social unrest in our society, the uncertainty of the future, all of these things. And we've been really asking the question, how are we responding to the things going on out there in the world? For example, last week we talked about Paul and his example and the hardships he faced in his life and ministry and how he responded, going to the Lord for comfort. With our passage today, we're not going to ask so much 
How are we responding to what's going on out there in the world? But the question we're going to focus on is how are we responding to what's going on in here, in our hearts? Of course, those two questions are related, but we're going to focus on our hearts this morning. Oftentimes, difficult circumstances reveal sin in our lives. Sin seems to surface when things become difficult. Maybe things we didn't know we had going on in our hearts until that circumstance exposed that. Here are some things that may have surfaced for you over the past few months. Sinful anger and frustration. Maybe even anger and frustration at God for things going on in your life. Unbelief. Is God really at work? Can we really trust Him in light of what we see? Idolatry. As things in our life change and we're forced to give up certain things, however little they may seem, as things are stripped from us, Maybe it's revealing a friendship with the world more than we would care to admit. Maybe it's excessive fear and anxiety, not trusting in Him or casting your cares upon Him as He's called us to. Maybe it's evidenced in prayerlessness as you deal with the things going on. And what about our obedience to our verse or verses of the year? I'm going to read those for us. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How are we doing with those things? What has been your response to these sins that may have surfaced? The Corinthians were faced with a similar question regarding their sins. So before we begin applying this passage to our lives today, we must look at what happened with them. What grief were they feeling? Point one in your outline. I want to read verse eight for us. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. So they were grieved due to this letter from Paul. We've talked about this in previous weeks. Um, This letter is probably a letter now lost to us, but a correspondence he had with the church regarding a certain situation. The letter he refers to, to here seems to be a response to a situation caused by an opponent of Paul who is leading the people away from following and submitting to his leadership. Much of the bulk of the chapters we've covered up to this point um, are evidence of this fact that he was, in many ways, defending his ministry with this letter in the face of opposition. And so he he sent this letter uh, via Titus to Corinth, but there was a delay in the response that he got from, that, from the church. 
Now imagine for a moment, put yourself in Paul's shoes. Have you ever had a falling out with someone? And you reached out to correspond with them, either through a letter, email, phone call, whatever. And you didn't get a response right away. That's kind of unsettling, isn't it? Um, There's a lot of emotions that swirl around when you're waiting for a response, hoping that they'll respond favorably. And Titus eventually comes with good news for Paul about their response, and we get some of the details here in our passage. But the point I want to make is that they responded with grief for their sins, sins that they were confronted with through Paul's letter. Hence, this passage is not about grief in general. Okay? In context, it's more specifically about grief for sin in particular. Paul goes on to say that they responded with a godly grief, and he contrasts this with a worldly grief. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time sort of looking at this contrast and seeing how it applies to us. So point two on your outline, you see godly grief versus worldly grief. Let me read again verses 9 and 10 for us. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, we might mention, first of all, in passing, that there is a proper grief to be experienced by believers as it relates to sin. And this really runs contrary to much of what the world has to say about these things. The world, it would seem, would see grief over behavior, any type of behavior, as something to be avoided at all costs, that grief for your behavior is a a sin of sorts to the world, Uh, something that you deal with uh, in other ways. And you can feel Paul's struggle here, much like a loving parent does not love to discipline their children, but sees it as necessary for their good and for their growth. So he's rejoicing not in the fact that they were grieved per se, but Uh, that they were grieved into repenting. The outcome of their grief is what he rejoices over. And you know, many of us have encountered in Scripture that God reveals himself as a loving father who disciplines his children for our good. The book of Hebrews chapter 12, we read about this. And the author there makes mention that discipline is painful yet it yields the fruit of righteousness. The word for painful there is the same word used for grief in verse 10 of our passage. And this kind of grief over sin is characteristic of those who belong to the kingdom of God. You remember the beatitude in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are those who mourn. What's he talking about there? I believe he's talking about mourning for sin in our lives and sin in the world. That that's a characteristic of those who belong to the kingdom. 
Is that a characteristic in your life? Let's look more now at this contrast between godly grief and worldly grief. The main difference, obvious in the text, is that godly grief uh, ends in repentance, and worldly grief does not. So let's talk about repentance for a moment. What is repentance? In our Westminster Standards Shorter Catechism, question 87, it says that it's a saving grace whereby a sinner out of the true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That's sort of a long definition, but it includes some important biblical components. Sorrow for sin, a hatred of it, a renunciation of it, and a turning away unto obedience. So repentance involves not only inward grief, but outward behavior. Turning to sin to the living God in obedience. You see, you can't turn to God without turning away from unrighteousness. And how many of us try to do just that? Lord, help me. I need your help. But I don't want to give up my sin. I want to have both. It'll never work. You'll never engage in the godly grief that Paul speaks of in this passage. Here's some things we need to think about. We need to be convinced that God is better than our sin. It's more desirable. He's more satisfying than our sin. Contrary to the enemy's attacks, you're not going to miss out on anything good by repenting. You're not going to miss out on anything good. You'll never regret repenting from your sin. And Paul even makes passing reference to that when he says without regret in verse 10. We might also add in in considering repentance that Scripture teaches us that repentance takes place not only at conversion, when we initially turn to the Lord Jesus in faith, turning from our sin, but it's to be a very regular pattern of our Christian life. Think of how Paul talks about the Christian life as putting off sin and putting on Christ. He's talking about repentance, a continual repentance that should characterize our lives as believers. As one writer put it, it's the rhythm of our relationship with the Lord. Let's talk more about how godly grief, which has repentance as a big part of it, how that differs from worldly grief. And I'm just going to kind of lay out a contrast, and I'm taking into account many other passages, other than the one we're looking at now. I think we can say with godly grief, the reference point and the focus is God. 
For worldly grief, the reference point and focus is man and self. I'll explain. You see, grief, godly grief, is due to offending the Lord. Worldly grief is grief over being humiliated before other men or losing face before other men and perhaps grief merely for the consequences that comes with the sin. Godly grief is rooted in God's word. God's word exposes us. It judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. That's where we see sin for what it is in relation to God. Worldly grief is connected more to the attitudes and the words of men in whose praise we don't want to lose. And then lastly, godly grief leads, as our text tells us, to salvation and life. There's a desire for communion with God in godly grief. Not merely a desire for the consequences to be over. We want to connect and commune with God. Worldly grief, as the text tells us, leads to death. We might add apostasy on that path as well. And there's many examples in Scripture you can think of that provide examples of this contrast. On the godly grief side, you, you see people like David and Peter who sinned greatly but grieved with a godly grief that led to repentance. Whereas on the flip side, we see figures like Esau, Saul in the Old Testament, Ahab, Judas. Note that each one of these men wept and were grieved. But it didn't lead to repentance. In addition, there are certain forms of grief I think that we need to be aware of because they're only partial as it relates to repentance. Don't confuse the mere recognition of sin with repentance. There's many who will recognize, hey, I'm not perfect. Sure, I sin, I make mistakes. Don't confuse that with actually repenting. Don't confuse merely being sorry for your sin, even with tears, with an actual turning from that sin. And as often is the case with many other uh, exhortations and instructions from Scripture, don't confuse merely talking about repentance with actually repenting. We can easily give lip service when our hearts are far from the Lord. Now Paul goes on to talk about how the Corinthians expressed their godly grief, and this is getting to the obedience side. It's, it's an inward grief, but it's an outward action as well. And they displayed this godly grief in various ways. Um, in verse 11, talks about their eagerness to clear themselves You see, they had an urgency to mend their ways. They didn't put it off. 
Now, this is a common tactic of the enemy. To tempt you to put it off. Repent later. Indulge in sin now. You can always repent later, right? Isn't God gracious and merciful? Do it later. Now, as as blasphemous as that sounds, how often do we all engage in that? That way of thinking. And we're guilty. There's some important things to remember from the scriptures regarding that temptation. Ultimately, it's not in our power to repent at will. As one writer put it, repentance is a flower that grows not in nature's garden. In other words, we need divine help to put our sin off and to put on Christ. Think of the passage that says, you know, when Paul's talking in Romans that we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. We need the Lord. Don't put it off thinking that it's merely in your hands and your willpower can, can win the day when it comes to repentance. And add to this the danger that due to the hardening nature of sin, you may not want to repent later. All the more, it reminds us of the sense of urgency. When our sin is revealed to us, we need to deal with it in the way that God has instructed and beware of presumption. Some other things that he mentions, actions associated with their godly grief. They expressed indignation. They had a righteous anger towards sin. They had fear, a reverence for God and reverence for Paul as God's representative. They expressed longing, probably longing to submit to the word of God and to receive instruction from Paul, his servant. They express zeal. And then he mentions what punishment. What is he talking about there? Most likely they were, they were morally aroused to affirm that sin deserved to be punished. That it's a serious matter. And they had to deal with it. Now, in all of this talk about repentance, I want us to remember something very important as convicting as these things are, and rightly so. Conviction is not condemnation for the believer. Conviction of sin is a good thing in the context of the gospel. As the text tells it, it should lead us to life. And I mentioned the text earlier from the Beatitudes Blessed are those who mourn. Second half says, for they shall be comforted. The gospel both convicts and comforts. And we are comforted abundantly through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now you may be thinking to yourself, yeah, but you don't know me. I'm too much of a sinner to run to Christ with all of that. He won't have me. 
as we've said previous times here in this pulpit, there is more grace in him than sin in us. And the real question is, will you have him as your Savior? He's an abundant Savior. Think of the story of the prodigal son. I would encourage you to revisit that passage later today. How did the father respond to the repentance of the son? Was he reluctant? Was he unwilling? Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, (laughs) but my repentance is lousy. I'll have to repent of my repentance in order to repent. My answer is welcome to the club. (laughs) We're all there. But here's an important truth about the gospel. We don't trust in the quality of our repentance. We trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. As the Puritan Thomas Watson wrote and warned, don't make an idol out of your repentance. Repentance is not payment for sin. It is a turning away from it to the one who did pay for sin in full, the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you are feeling a continual grief and guilt, even for a particular sin that you've repented of. John Piper warns that if Satan can't keep you from regretting your sin... He will do his best to keep you from enjoying your forgiveness. So my word of encouragement to you this morning is that Christ came to destroy such works of the devil. And he is able and willing to give you peace and joy in your salvation as a fruit of the Spirit. Hear these words from Isaiah chapter 57 and what it tells us about the heart of God towards repentant sinners. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What sins have surfaced in your life recently? How will you grieve in light of this passage? Repentance leads to life. Even when you're tempted to say, my life or certain aspects of my life, they don't even seem redeemable in light of my sin. Maybe I should just give up and give in. I want to tell you that everything in our lives is redeemable. Everything. And can be changed for the glory of God because He is able and because of what Christ has done. Let's pray.
Father, we rejoice in the gospel today. We confess, as we did earlier, we are sinful people. We are a needy people, in need of your grace, moment by moment. Lord, use the word in our hearts today. As we've thought about it, talked about it, may your spirit convict and lead us to life. Help us to repent with a sense of urgency. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.